So we have a special guest today on Arash's World, uh, Dr. Loretta Bruining. And uh, welcome to Arash's World. And if you can briefly introduce yourself in any way you see fit, and then we'll get started with our great discussion here. Hi, thanks. Um, well, I teach people about the brain chemicals that make us feel good. I stumbled on these facts while I was like anybody trying better understand why humans have such trouble feeling good and so easily feel bad. And uh, I struggled with this when I was young in the sense that people around me were always unhappy and I couldn't understand why. So I think I was always looking for an explanation. And I studied psychology throughout my life and I never got the explanation that really satisfied me. And I think because psychology was not my primary profession, I was able to get bits and pieces from different aspects of psychology and weave them together. But the big influence on me, except for like parenting and dealing with my own students, was um, nature videos. And nature videos showed me such obvious realities about the mammal brain inside us. And yet it was not at all what I was hearing from psychology. And so that's why I started doing my own research. And then I wrote books about it. Wonderful. So you are also founder of the Inner Mammal Institute. Yes. Uh, you're a brain chemistry expert, a professor. And, and various other things, and as a, a writer as well. And uh, I've seen uh, the titles of some of your books. They sound, uh, they sound and look amazing. So I've added them onto my reading list, uh, which is growing and growing continuously. But um, I'd like to start off here by telling something that I am fascinated about, which is, uh, and I don't necessarily understand it, but I am fascinated by it, is neuroscience and evolutionary psychology. So uh, years ago, when I was uh, an undergrad student, mm -hmm. um, I'm studying a bit of uh, psychology here and there too, I stumbled upon Helen Fisher and her perspective of talking about love in terms of brain chemistry and comparing it to an addiction that is again causing your brain so that you crave and uh, these kind of like states of, of high being high on 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 love and on, 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 on feelings like that I found very fascinating and so um, the brain is hugely important here uh, I think and also it goes back to evolution because many things that we are today as human beings as a human species is from what came before and uh, that connection is very important to understanding who we are what we are and what makes us happy and what doesn't and i believe that is uh, one of the uh, main themes of your latest book which is uh, status games why we play and how to stop so maybe let's talk a bit about your book first before we dive into various other things i'd love to discuss with you great thanks well, in my introductory book is called Habits of a Happy Brain, um, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels. But this book, Status Games, focuses only on the serotonin part of it because that's really the complicated one. Now, the story about serotonin that you hear from internet wisdom and academia uh, ignores what I consider like the big story. You may think you'll get serotonin from taking a hot bath and lighting candles or something because the truth is rather uncomfortable. So throughout the 20th century, there was tons of research on the hierarchical behavior of mammals. Mammals are always comparing themselves to others and wanting to be in the position of strength because that promotes their genes. And animals don't know what genes are, so they're not consciously doing this. They're doing it because natural selection built a brain that rewards you with a good feeling, serotonin, when you say, I'm stronger than you in, in your mind. Now, if you think I'm weaker than you, your brain releases cortisol, the stress chemical. So needless to say, it's a very difficult challenge to try to get this good feeling of serotonin without being a jerk. And so that's the challenge that I'm writing about. So it's basically, it's like, it depends. You, it, it has to be a certain level. We have to regulate it. It's not that too much of this is good, but it has to be kind of in, in balance. And the other point is, 
yes, we want to be on our own, but we need others to survive. We need others to cooperate, to protect us as well. So um, in terms of both our evolutionary past and today, what can we do to find that, that right balance between those two? Yeah, so um, I use a metaphor of driving in the middle lane. So there's a temptation to go into the fast lane and then there's some downside of that. And from the perspective of status and social dominance, we can see both the temptation and the downside, which is that frustration that people have when they're always chasing. But then there you could drive in the slow lane, but that has a downside, which is that you're in the slow lane, everyone watching everyone pass you by, and you may feel left behind and resentful, which is cortisol. And so how can you be in the middle lane? And a very simple way I explain of doing that is to put yourself up without putting others down. I like that. And that is easier said than done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely, because we, we tend to always compare ourselves with others. And um, there is the, this envy, this green-eyed monster, as Shakespeare would say. And I think that is definitely true, because we tend to often overlook how fortunate we are. And we tend to compare ourselves to others who are or seem, actually, I should say, seem better off than we are. Yes, exactly. And the interesting, amazing thing that I love learning about this comparison that I make is controlled by my past experience. And the comparison you make is controlled by your past experience because our brains wire in youth. And just the same as like, I was not born speaking my native language. You were not born speaking your, so it's just a bunch of pathways and we control our emotions in the same way. And so many people, like you said, resort to this negative comparison where they always put themselves on the bottom with a bad effect. But the other one is the person who always has to put themselves on top and that has its own bad effects. And, yeah. and everyone just repeats whatever that worked when they were young. Exactly. And I, I, I love that you're putting that in as well, because that's a very important part that we tend to forget, that that personal dimension, the personal lens through which we see the world, the experiences we've had. And last week, I, I talked to um, a psychoanalyst a Dr. Uh, Erika Komisar, who talked about the brain as well. And she says, well, there are two main periods, the critical periods of brain growth, which is from zero to three when you're an infant, when we're infants, as well as uh, during the during adolescence. And so the idea is here also our uh, prefrontal cortex does not grow fully and does not mature until we're 25. So that raises a lot of questions for me, because when you get maybe people who are in power and who are younger, young adults who have the drive and energy, but at the same time, the brain has not fully matured and we need the prefrontal cortex for making here wise decisions and that, that benefit others. And the second point is that not all people have fully developed that, have fully matured. And you might get adults who are lacking in that department. So that kind of opened my eyes to, to, to many things that are happening in today's world. And I see a lot of people acting out like, teenagers. <laughs> yeah, so here's a few things. So one, we don't see our own status games. We don't see our own neural pathways. We don't see our own urge for serotonin because the part of the brain that controls our emotions is inherited from animals and cannot use language. So these chemicals that really drive us, we don't consciously decide and we don't consciously know that we're doing it because the mammal brain can't tell you what it's doing in words. But when other people do it, we say, what a jerk, why are they doing that? That's so stupid. So, so that's why I, I try in the book to focus on, like really focus on yourself. This is not about finding out what's wrong with everybody else because that's oh so easy, right? <laughs> but it doesn't really lead to happiness. So that's one whole piece of it. Now, another whole piece, you talked about maturity. So I don't use the word maturity because it implies that as you get older, you get wisdom. But as you said, you don't necessarily get it. So what is this business about what older? 
the only thing, and this is troubling, it's neuroplasticity means you build new pathways easily when you're young. That means when you take in a new experience, you just build the connections without even making an effort. And that's what happens when you're young. And so whatever happened to you when you were young, you're going to repeat it. If you got rewarded for healthy behavior, then you will continue to take healthy steps. If when you're young, you got rewarded for unhealthy behavior, then you're gonna take unhealthy steps. So you wire in whatever's going on when you're young, whether it's like mature or non-mature. I, I completely agree. Uh, the, um, I mean, ju making judgments is, is, is so easy. And in many cases, when people make judgments, it actually, for me, reveals their own issues that they have. And in many cases, when you're angry, when somebody pushes your buttons, it's because that is something that personally affects you. And that's where my, my study of psychoanalysis has really brought that to light. And so, so the, the issue is, I think a lot of people are not being honest with themselves. I believe, and they're not going through these traumatic experiences that they've had. Uh, I can tell from myself, I, I've, I've had come from a dysfunctional family. Uh, my mother's a narcissist. And so, uh, so it's not ideal conditions. But at the same time, there is a path out. And as you say, you can kind of like neuroplasticity plays a role there of like, yes, I can break out of that. I can deal with that. I can grow and what I would say rewire. emotionally rewire exactly emotionally grow more and to get out of that dark place and the other thing I like to mention is that that happiness that uh, we're looking for it comes from moments of suffering because that's when you realize what's wrong so we listen to it we deal with it and then we grow from it whereas a lot of people do ignore it and they try to repress it. And so here again, Freud becomes important where you don't deal with those issues and they just build up. And that's why people are acting out the way they are. Uh, so it's not necessarily me judging them, but it's me noticing this is the problem, but you need to find your own happiness. And uh, what would you say? How can they, how can these people find their own happiness? How can others do that? What would be your, your quick tip here that you can, you could share? Sure, sure. Um, first, I want to mention, um, I have a lot in the book about Freud. Um, what I have is um, the uh, a little personal story of famous people and the status games in their life. Mm -hmm. And I've chosen famous people who are uh, relevant in some way. Now, Sigmund Freud obviously is relevant because he helped us understand the unconscious, but he also had a lot of things to say that, that uh, retrospectively seem quite foolish, like the idea that children want to have sex. Um, so I looked at, like, you probably was like, what about Freud's life? What was going on with him and his mother? You know, oh, I should show you this book here. You'll love it because I have it right here. It's called Freud and His Mother. I'll even oh send it to God. you. Oh my God, I have to add that onto my list. <laughs> but I read like 15 different biographies of Freud. This was because of the lockdown. It was a good time for like one more. And so he had a horrible life. And it helps us understand the... Um, the fact that people who are in a prominent position and you may think, oh, they got it going on, they're happy all the time, their life is easy, to see how really hard the life was in, in historical times. And as you said, people now don't appreciate what they have and how people pushed ahead even without getting the applause of the world. So serotonin is the feeling of being special. And you may think other people get to be special all the time. Other people are getting applause all the time. And I'm not. Why is this so unfair? What's wrong? Um, but when you see the real life stories of famous people, you see that that's not how it was. And yet they persisted. Now, the other thing you mentioned about um, when somebody pushes your buttons and then you act out, either acting out publicly or making yourself miserable. So it's fun to think about the buttons as like real physical things. So just like I said, we're wired from whatever triggered your serotonin in your past wired you to repeat that. 
But whatever triggered your threat chemicals in the past, your cortisol wired you to repeat that. So if I'm a young person and I see myself as the little monkey who's always abused by bigger monkeys, then I wire myself to see things that way. And that triggers cortisol, the stress chemical, and makes you feel like you are being attacked right this minute, even though you created the whole scenario in your head by comparing yourself unfavorably to others. So the solution, needless to say, is to first become aware that you've done it, which is not real easy, but is much easier than like, I'm gonna change the whole world. Mm -hmm, wonderful. I love uh, psychoanalyzing Freud, and he famously said, sometimes a cigar is a cigar, and try to evade that, uh, which is what happens. I mean, when you are presenting a theory, be ready that it would be used against you as well at some point. And I uh, just love that. I have to take a look at that book for sure. I think the we want uh, we want confirmation of who we are. We want applause, like you're saying. We want to, to feel important. But... Um, it's often not enough because the issue is so deep and you, you are mentioning here parents, which is definitely true because we are basic. A lot of our actions is we are unconsciously trying to please our parents, whether they're alive or not. And it, it continues with us. And until we actually deal with that issue, we are kind of stuck like a, a hamster in a wheel and you keep turning and turning and we won't find satisfaction. And we often like one of the, the, the dangers is we think like money will give us happiness or fame or both of them com combined. But in fact, if you are not happy with who you are, none of this will make you happy. Yes, yes, exactly. So if I could add a couple of things in this um, uh, influence of your parents is mirror neurons. So mirror neurons are um, something we've inherited because monkeys could not learn from words. They could not go to school. So how does every little monkey learn to feed itself? Because no one feeds it. So it literally mirrors the behavior of others. And you don't mirror just any behavior, you mirror whatever gets rewards or gets pain because you mirror, you wire yourself to relieve, to avoid pain. So whatever made your parents happy, whatever your parents did to run from pain, you were actually mirroring that in a nonverbal way. So it's hard to be aware of. And then later when you're aware of it, you could say, oh my God, I'm never gonna do that. And then why do so many people do it? <laughs> so that's one whole thing. Now, the other thing you said- Can about I just, uh, just jump oh, sure. in here? So one thing I think to, to help with that is to, to draw healthy boundaries and to realize, and that's a state we go through at adolescence. You're like, okay, this is me and this is not me. And I should have gone through this through adolescence, but I did it at a much later age because I did not know it. I was not fully aware of it. And this is also one of the reasons I am doing all this. So people find out before it gets too late or even sooner than, than I did, because it makes a huge difference. And being able to differentiate yourself, uh, you're separate from who you think you are and who others think you are. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no perfect way because if an adolescent separates too much, that has consequences too. So we don't need to think that there's like a perfect way, but like you said, we're always growing and that's what counts. Um, but as far as pleasing your parents, the other element is pleasing your peers because in the monkey world and, you know, in the human world, let, let me be crass, like your parents can't get you sex partners <laughs> and that's what your inner mammal is looking for. So you have to please your peers in some way. And this is what was nature videos taught me this so profoundly. And that's what made me say, wow, how come psychology didn't teach me that? So what do you do to please your peers? Unfortunately, your mirror neurons look around your high school and you see that some kids get a lot of attention and other kids get teased. So you want to, your mirror neurons tell you, oh, you should do what those who get attention do, and you should avoid doing what those who tease are doing. Now, needless to say, high school kids are not the best arbiters of healthy long-run behavior. So none of us has this 
perfect ideal, you know, neural network. So we should not think about ideal. Yeah, I, I just my personal experience, I remember the cool kids would smoke and I never did. So I was never one of the cool kids back then. But in retrospect, I'm glad it was that way, because instead I chose books and I chose movies and things that made me grow in, in, in many ways. Yes, um, exactly. But also, but I, let me just say, by being the not cool kid, like um, you feel one down and then you hold that one down feeling in you. And what I've observed is anyone you talk to will tell you they were not cool, including Hollywood stars. So how could that be? that nobody was cool. So I address this in the book. I have like a, a lot on popularity. Cool, so how, how can we be cool? What would you say? What makes us cool? <laughs> well, first, since you asked, I thought you were gonna say, how can we happy, be happy without being cool? But since you asked it I that way- I just wanna be cool, okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna give you the biological answer to how to be cool, according to some research that I observed that what makes you cool in high school is the same as what makes you cool in a monkey troop, which is the appearance of being healthy because the brain selects for partners that are healthy because that's what keeps your genes alive. The other is a strong social alliance because, and that's what like, you know, whether it's gangs or sitting at the cool table or a monkey that's accepted into the more powerful coalition that can get the sex partners from the other coalition. And finally, a willingness to take risks, which is hilarious because like, if you're afraid to talk to a, a potential romantic partner, which I, I certainly was, you know, um, but, then you see that the cool kid just goes right up and talks to them. It's exactly parallel to the monkey that takes risks gets more mating opportunity. That just answered a, a long held question that I had. Why do the girls always go after the jerks in my own high school experience? Now I have the answer uh, many years after that. Uh, you mentioned animals and I think our perception of animals is very flawed. And uh, it, it kind of, um, we have a very romanticized uh, view of animals. Um, so I'm thinking of like uh, programs like Grizzly Man, the documentary where Timothy Treadwell decides to go and live with, uh, with the bear and uh, he sadly dies and uh, from from one of them that attacks oh, him. I'm going to look this up. I don't oh, know. It's this. a wonderful documentary. But um, his view is was basically they are like teddy bears because he had teddy bears when he was a kid. He had issues with his parents. He moved on. He says, I'm safer and happier with bears than with humans. Now, um, to his Oops. defense, he <laughs> did have uh, there's lots of nature shots and like he's really close up with the bears and the way he interacts with them is amazing. He's not afraid of them. He like faces them and tells them what to do and they back off. So that uh, idea of a human surviving for such a long time is impressive. And they explain why he might have been attacked. So I don't want to give, give that away in terms of spoilers, but uh, definitely it's, it's sad. The sad fact is he, he died from it. But even somebody like Jane Goodall, um, because she went and lived with the chimpanzees and um, there were issues with polio and there were issues with like getting into their, their habitat and um, kind of changing the way animals uh, react and live and react to humans. And so it's a complex issue, but the idea is that they are not our plush figures that we had as kids. They can be and often are ferocious and wild. Is that true? Yes. And the interesting thing is, as just as you said, they might appear to be um, social bonding in one moment and then still able to kill you in the next moment. And the story you mentioned as played out, we this famous story about that happening with gorillas, famous story about that happening with tigers. So this is the idea that, yeah, that um, uh, animals don't, always restrain their violence for a variety of reasons. And uh, the idealized view is problematic. I have a, a really funny example. So I learned so much from animal training and especially dolphin training because it shows you that the brain learns from rewards. And if you have a person who's stuck and if you could structure their reward system so that they could succeed in getting a reward from a healthy behavior, that's the only solution there is. 
but we so rarely do that. We often give rewards for bad behavior, but when you study animal training, so they have it right, but then they can't admit that that's what they're doing because it doesn't sound spiritual to say that the animal is just doing a trick to get a fish. So they, they spin it and try to make it sound like the, the dolphin and I have a bond of love and he's doing it because he loves me. <laughs> but now I want to backtrack a bit and talk about my, my hamster. We recently acquired a hamster. You got to see him. And so um, it's, it's fascinating how at first he was this scared little hamster and was just like just kind of scared of us and everything and would occasionally even bite us. And now he is this calm and patient being, and he's kind of changed. Um, one of the things I, I've, I've always been fascinated with is also um, the dog whisperer, where Cesar Milan always works with the owners and not the dogs, because the owners kind of transmit their anxieties basically onto the dogs and they react differently. But in our case, um, and I think it reflects my, my son's personality, our hamster is very responsible. He, um, we had this cage for him and he would find a way of breaking out, even though it's like secure. I don't know how he did that, how we found the loophole. So we said, you know what, here's your pathway. You walk out whenever you like. And so he walks around at night. He comes and visits us in, in our bedroom. He goes and does his business in the washroom. I don't know how he knows that, how he's aware of that. And he often runs around in circles in the kitchen for like 20 times, just like an obsessive compulsive person, just like counterclockwise always. And, uh, but then in the morning, he's back in his place and he's the same spot. Every morning when you go back, he's there. He didn't escape, he didn't get lost. He knows exactly what he's doing. So I think it's somewhere in between where it's not this wild, ferocious animal. It's an animal that feels, that thinks, that's conscious. And I think sometimes we don't give animals enough credit, even though our view is, is romanticized and idealized, but at the same time, there's something else. Would you agree mm. with that? Mm. Uh, yeah, but um, I wouldn't use the word consciousness for it because huh. your animal learned from experience. Okay. And the ability to learn from experience, we talked about is neuroplasticity. So their ability to learn from experience is much more limited than ours. And the experience is rewards and pain. And our experience we, can be internally generated also. Whereas your animal learned from their patrolling fear of perceived threats and rewards is the food. And I think the washroom, it may be that it can detect the um, uh, water in the washroom. and. Okay. and they can detect water better, but also of how did they get out of the cage when it looks closed? Their body can pass through. You hear this thing like something that's like really tiny. Yeah. We but, saw um, him go I, under our door frame. We closed the door. He wouldn't come in and through the under the door frame, he, he, he came in. So it was just impressive how, how small they can get. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. Now, um, you mentioned about Cesar Milan and mm -hmm. oh, I, yeah, we have so many of the same um, like influencers. So I was very much influenced by the dog whisperer. Mm -hmm. And yet here in California, where I am, he's, he's rather hated because he pointed out this dominant submission thing that is very offensive to people, um, but it's a component of status games it's always with us and people don't like to admit it, but if you don't see how you're doing it, then you think other people are doing it to you. So it's very valuable to know how you're doing it. So the way it works is if you're a monkey and I'm a monkey and there's a banana between us, I know that if I grab the banana and you're bigger than me, you're gonna bite me. And if I get bitten, that's pain and, and it, it could also disable me and I could starve to death. So I want to avoid pain more than I want the banana. So I'm going to compare myself to you. And if I see that you're stronger than me, my cortisol is released and I'm going to withdraw. Now, but I still, I'm still hungry. So then I go look for another banana that's not near a bigger individual. So I keep comparing myself to others. And when I see someone who's smaller than me, I, my serotonin is released and I go for it. And the way this works in the monkey world, 
They're constantly comparing themselves to the one next to them. And even when there's no banana, or even if they're not hungry, it's like, if I see that you're bigger than me, I skulk down. And that tells you, you don't have to hurt me because I'm not going to challenge you for the top spot. And you are gonna, usually the dominance gesture comes first. If you think you're bigger than me, or let's say if I think I'm bigger than you, so I'm gonna puff up my chest and give you a direct stare. So animals usually avoid fighting because they can get hurt. So they never fight unless both individuals are convinced that they're the stronger one. They fight over a mate though, right? To impress the mate, is that true? Uh, <laughs> yes, but um, only if they think they can win. Oh, uh, because okay. otherwise, yeah. So, and then when they, this is the other thing, when people say, oh, it's just display, they're just fighting to show off. I tell people, look at nature videos of these dominance contests. They bash into each other with full force. It's unbelievable that they could survive it. So it's not just display. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, but uh, I find myself kind of in, a, in an interesting position because when, when people um, are playing strong, they say, I'm, I'm the macho, I'm strong and so on. I actually do not like that. And I, I, I say, well, maybe I'm scared of them. I don't know. But I actually appreciate when people admit weaknesses where they say, you know, where they're honest, I would say mm -hmm. about situations and say, you know what? I am scared of this situation or I'm afraid of talking to that girl because uh, what could happen? So those people I generally appreciate more than, than the ones who are the, 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 the tough guys. So Well, um, we're yeah. defining strength in a new way in the modern world. Okay. So one form of strength would be, you know, physical, but another form, what you're talking about is self-awareness or mm -hmm. self-disclosure or um, frankness, like your <laughs> looking for a social ally and a person who's frank with you is more likely to be your ally and that increases your strength. Whereas a person who acts macho, then you may think that they're not going to be on your side. So that does not increase your strength. But if you are attacked by a bully, then you'd want an alliance with a stronger individual because that would protect you. So your brain is always calculating what's good for your own, uh, your own survival. That makes a lot of sense. I found it fascinating. I heard on a program that our, our pupils um, are evolved and with compared to animals because of whether your status was more a, a hunter or a predator or a, or prey. So that, for example, cats and snakes have these like vertical slits, whereas like a, a horse would have a, a horizontal slit to be able to have like better vision around them. And we're kind of in the middle, but our vision is actually not that evolved or that important compared to, to other animals. Uh, so I was trained to be a docent at my local zoo, and we were taught to memorize this thing. Eyes in front likes to hunt. Eyes on the side likes to hide. <laughs> and um, prey animals, they even have these eyes that can see almost 360 degrees. So their survival rests on uh, avoiding predators because the food is always there. And even when their head is down with food, they can still look up and see the predator. Whereas a predator is designed to um, to find food. And actually the interesting thing is has a very low success rate. Predators have a very low success rate in their chases. And so they have life challenges too. Now for humans in between, um, one thing that I just read about, imagine a person, uh, you throw me a ball and I'm trying to catch it. Think about what a complex skill that is that I'm not only having to judge with my eyes the rate at which, but then I'm running toward the ball. So I'm having to coordinate that judgment with my feet, with the judgment with my hands, with the judgment with my eyes. So all of this is extremely complex systems. And yet we do it non-verbally. It's wired in youth from experience. If, you know, if I had my eyes covered in youth or my hands tied up, I would not build those pathways.
I, the brain is amazing. I, I read a book about the process of uh, making coffee, basically. And that was my article about the processes you go through to make your daily coffee, which we take for granted again. It's so complex. It takes so much learning, so much practice and so on, so much wiring in the brain. And this is like the simplest of all things. Then we talk about complex thought and, and the making decisions and who to marry, who to have kids with and so on. So it's just like fascinating. What book? Um, is that about making coffee? I will I will send you the link okay. uh, with the 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 article that I wrote, but it's just oh. like the idea of memory too, of like how we have like uh, working memory, and then we we try to block off other types of distractions while we're making coffee because sometimes we get like a call and we do so it becomes like a, a habit. But uh, and I will I have also uh, I talked about the book which is uh, fascinating by David Badre. It's a fascinating book, and uh, I'll, I'll share that with you. Um, what I would like to also mention is so we often negative experiences we remember them more. And when I noticed that this is, has an evolutionary purpose, it made me realize that it's not a fault of my own. It's not a flaw in my brain. It is something that we all share. And that is perfectly natural and actually beneficial. So when we go through evolution is that that path you took nine times, you were fine. The 10th time you got attacked. So that is the one that will be fresh in your memory. And so once we see that and we get that, that failure or we didn't get that job, but everything else worked out fine up to that point, we tend to just like focus on the negative. So I think being conscious of that and making sure it's like, no, it's just natural. This is how we've, we've wired uh, from, exactly. from our ancestors. And what I often notice when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you think about is like the biggest threat or problem or unhappiness in your life. It's like your first thought. And if you think about if you were a caveman and you leave your cave in the morning, the first thing you have to do before you, you know, go to the fire is look around that there's no predators there. Yeah. And uh, so when when uh, when a plane crashes and that's horrible, that's a, that's a tragedy. But then I'm thinking like, OK, this is the one that was sticking our minds through media because we had a plane crash. People died. But then how many planes are taking off and nothing happens? They don't like announce like, oh, and today another plane took off and everything went well. So that kind of distortion often gives us the perception that we're living in a very hostile world, in a very dangerous world, when we, in reality, are living in a very safe place. I'm saying as COVID is happening, of course, but, but uh, overall, everything considered, we are in a very good place, but that's not our perception of the world. Exactly. News gives you a tremendously exaggerated sense of threat. Everything is an emergency. And frankly, even the COVID thing is being exaggerated because the, the death rate, as you know, is extremely, extremely low, especially for, you know, an average healthy person. And um, I, I know in the United States that hospitals that report a death as a COVID death get extra compensation. So that's part of the statistics. And, uh, but one of the other things on the other side is it's happening now and we have the tools, we have the means to deal with it with our vaccines, which is something completely new, which didn't exist, exist when we had uh, the Spanish flu, for instance. So that, that growth of technology of having also being able to work uh, remotely, have uh, Zoom conversations and interviews and, and all that, it's just like, this is what we've done. So I, I often see the good side of things, even in the midst of tragedy. I was like, but look at that side. But a lot of people get stuck. They, uh, they sink. They think everything is, is the worst. And um, I read about the brain too. The, there's the amygdala hijack where it's kind of like you're in stress, a fight and a flight uh, response or freeze response. And you do not process, uh, the, you do not access the higher parts of your brain. And so you don't learn. And so you feel stressed and the cortisol increases and so on. So overall, a vicious cycle that makes things much worse for ourselves. Yes, exactly. Um, I explain, I have another book called Tame Your Anxiety. So I explain a cortisol spiral like this. When a gazelle smells a predator, the first thing it has to do is look for information. Where is the predator? So it, and where is the best escape route? And so that's your first response when you feel like something's wrong, get that bad feeling, look for information. Then 
gazelle focuses on the step in front of it, not on the predator. Then the gazelle goes back to enjoying the grass. So human world, when you, when you have that first feeling like something's wrong, you look for information about potential threat and your brain is so big that you could always find information about potential threat. So you go on and on and on creating abstract images of potential threats that a gazelle can't do because it doesn't have enough neurons to create abstract images. So you trigger more cortisol, so then you do more radar for threats and more cortisol, and then you get into this bad loop, and then you're always focused on the predator, but you can shift your focus to your next step. And as soon as you focus on your next step, you start stimulating happy chemicals rather than threat chemicals. And I, I find the way through my own personal experiences when, for example, you are in a job, I'm in a job interview or in a class I'm teaching. And then if I'm concerned about this could go wrong or this person might react differently or this person looks bored or this person is confused and it's kind of like blocking me. Whereas if I relax, then there's so much more I can do. Not only do I feel better, not only do I teach better, but uh, the students react also in a positive way. So it's the, the thought that you didn't have can be the thought that can get you out of the mess, but you have to be relaxed enough to let it come to you. And when you're in that state, you can't think, basically. Your, your, your brain is taking you hostage. It's funny because my experience was so similar that when I give a talk, I noticed that if there was one person in the audience that sort of grimacing, that I would focus on them. That's insane. Why was I doing that? <laughs> And yet I was doing it. And you could say easy answer of why I was doing it because my mother was always angry at me and I monitored her because that was my survival. And the minute I realized that I was doing it, I stopped doing it. So just understanding that something is a neural pathway rather than reality. Yeah, for me, very similar. When when uh, a boss, or I had an ex-boss and she was uh, talking to me and I felt like scared and intimidated. And then the thought is like, oh no, she's not my mother. And suddenly like everything switches. Like, I don't actually really care what you're telling me because it's not true. And And that changed the whole perspective. And I think once we do that, we can, we need to relax. And once we do that, then um, everything is going to be so much easier. Life is going to be easier for us. Yeah. Now, another um, less healthy response uh, would be, of course, there's the person who thinks I'm a little monkey and this boss is going to eat me. But the alternative view is to hate the boss and to think I'm going to get back to them, back at them. I'm going to conquer them. I'm going to put them down in some way. And each person can look at their old pathways to see which loop they're in and then recognize that that's a loop. So it really seems to be about mindfulness, like being aware, being mindful of uh, your thoughts, your emotions, your reactions, your relationships. Would you say that is true? We need to be mindful of it, like kind of be aware of it? Or is that just- Mindful is step one. So um, the way I explain it is the electricity in your brain goes into the path of least resistance, whichever pathway is most developed. So mindfulness is the skill of, not rushing into that pathway, which is effectively just being in neutral. But what's more helpful then is to build new pathways. So the new pathway then, so that you're not always like trying so hard to resist the old behavior, but the new behavior comes natural. So mindfulness does not do that. So what you need is self reprogramming, which is to focus on the behavior you want or the thought that you want. For example, my boss is not the only opinion in the world and I have the ability to survive with or without her approval. And then when you tell yourself that repeatedly, you will build a new pathway. But at first it feels wrong and scary to tell yourself that because the old pathway is so well-developed. And so then mindfulness is that skill of noticing that urge to flow there and to stop yourself. And then I call it building an exit ramp from the old highway into your brain. So that gives you that power to say, I'm not going to think that thought, what other thought would be better for me? 
And it comes down to identity too, because uh, a lot of people, myself included, would identify myself with my job. But then I think, and if things go wrong, so I feel threatened because it's a threat to my identity, who I think I am. But I'm much more than that. And we are much more than that because we have different roles and responsibilities. I'm a father, I'm a husband, and so on. So there's like friend and, and all that, blogger. And so, so when, when you look at that, it's, it's more varied and we shouldn't get stuck on one tiny definition that limits us. Yes, yes. Um, but I also remember like a time in my life where I thought like I was the exploited little monkey, like I'm at the bottom of the hierarchy at work and I'm at the bottom at home and I was at the bottom growing up and therefore I'll always be at the bottom. So then you have to redefine things because if you think, well, I'm going to solve this by being at the top, well, that's not really going to work either because you can't always be at the top. And many people who think they have to be at the top, they actually think their survival is threatened if they're number two. So every one of us is challenged really to be aware that, that we're doing this social comparison and to create the ability to feel safe when we're not at the top by having confidence in our own strength. And um, I, I think, why would you want to be on the top? I mean, it comes with a lot of responsibility. It comes with a lot of threats, with a lot of envy. So uh, I think really for me, happiness is like doing what you like to do and, uh, and that's it. And everything that comes from it, if you get recognition, good. I'm not saying no to it. I will gladly embrace it. But even if it's not, it's like, okay, I'm fine. So it's, it's kind of that relaxed attitude of like, I don't have to achieve much. And the other thing is the issue with perfectionism. That does not exist. That's a lie we're told. And it is causing a lot of havoc, especially younger people, but us as well, any age. And I think we need to strive to do our best, but that level of perfection, we have to be okay of not reaching it. It's like, this is the best I've tried. This is as good as it gets for me and I'm okay with it. But we don't have that. We have that extra drive to be the very, very best at the very top. And it causes so much suffering and it actually stagnates us and holds us back in many ways. Yes, yes. A simple way to think about it, um, in my other work, I talk about dopamine. So your brain releases the joy of dopamine when you take a step toward a reward. And many people, when they're young, they're taught to dream of something big. And the problem is that it's like you then you think you can't be happy until you get to the top of the mountain. And so instead, you can imagine everyone can establish a short-run goal, a long-run goal, and a middle-term goal so that you're constantly stimulating your dopamine instead of just feeling like you can't be happy until you get to the top. I love that because a lot of people are working. It's like, when I retire, I can't wait till I retire. And then they get to that point and they're like, now what? <laughs> so, and they're not happy. And they basically wasted their whole life waiting for this moment. And now they don't know what to do with it. So I think we have to keep that in mind. I love that that idea of like having your, your specific goals at a specific stage. So it kind of moves you on, but it's also you feel you're achieving things. You're not stuck or yeah, you're, you're progressing. You're reminding me of that famous cartoon where there's a guy sitting at his desk and in his thought bubble, he's on a tropical island with a bunch of girl arms around his girls. And then, then you see the tropical island <laughs> where the guy is imagining that he's at a desk in some big uh, Manhattan skyscraper. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's in a way the games we do play of like, you know, of thinking or taking things uh, that are not important, but we, we give them importance. And that's how, um, and in society, it, it kind of like creates all these tendencies and these movements. And um, one of the things you mentioned too, that I'm, I'm, I'm quite uh, interested in currently is political correctness. And um, I think it's a, it's a terrible thing, but let's see your view on, on that. I think it's destructive um, generally, not terrible, destructive. I think it's very destructive. And my book is called How I Escaped Political Correctness and You Can Too. Um, so needless to say, you can't 100% correct it. Uh, you can't escape it because it, you have to live in the world that exists, but you can escape it in your mind because 
What I explain in status games is when we compare ourselves to others, we're always choosing the basis of comparison. And in the modern world, moral superiority has become a favored basis of comparison. And there's a good side to this because it's better than, you know, in old movies, like men would always get into a fist fight and they, they're compared like who, who had bigger muscles. So it's, it's good to have moral superiority as a thing, but then the fast, easy way for everyone to be morally superior is to just make condemnations of other people's morality and that's what's going on with political correctness. And again, we wire ourselves to repeat whatever works. So if you're a teenager in high school and you didn't do the homework, but you write an essay with lots of moral condemnations of other people and you get an A, then you don't need, you think that's what life is. That's what you do. And maybe it goes back to mirroring. Are we not mirroring what others are saying and we think that's accepted, so I will do that. And even though I feel it's wrong, I'm just going to override it and just uh, try to yeah. fit in. And I think conformity is a huge issue with us because we feel so uh, not in touch with ourselves, with who we are, with our identity, and we're not happy. We like to conform with others so we feel stronger that way because I'm not the only one. There's others who feel the same way. Yes, exactly. And again, we're always observing what gets rewards and what gets threats. So if you say something politically correct, you get rewards. If you say something that's not, if you don't say the politically correct thing, you can get uh, real harm. And so your brain is always trying to protect you from harm. And one of the uh, the places here is real social media that is really making things much worse in in many ways of like of the, making those those voices heard the echo chambers that we have and, and and all that. But I think like in many ways it's also unfairly blamed because we are in control of social media and we can use it the way we want to. We're not victims. And I think that kind of like idea of I've fallen victim to it and they they're responsible for my issues. I disagree with that. Thank you so much. I don't know how we've arrived at the same conclusions. It's really amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I, I think that's it. And these are discussions people should have to, again, going back to being honest with themselves and really looking at the issues. And there is a lot of um, uh, many kids who are being prescribed uh, medication for ADHD. And, uh, and the psychoanalyst I talked to last week, she said, that's a symptom. That is our anxiety that is manifesting itself. And that a lot of parents are just um, not, uh, they're just lazy. And they say, this is an easy solution. Yeah, that will calm the symptoms and done. And it doesn't work that way. So of uh, being, and again, the example of Cesar Milan came up is like a lot of the suffering is because of their parents, right? And it's not the children th themselves. So to be able to see that, it hurts. It hurts. It's difficult. And in many ways, uh, growth is, is really two things, taking risks, but also stepping outside of your comfort zone. And a lot of people do not do that. And a lot of people choose the easy, fast, quick way. And that is not effective. Well, you're, um, I, yeah, you're challenging me to think of a, a good way to get people to step out of their comfort zone. And maybe to find an animal way to explain comfort zone. I guess, you know, it would be like if your gerbil, like let's say you move to a new house and then your gerbil would have to reorient themselves. I guess it was like that, it would be like that. Okay, yeah. But but is again, once you Hamster. have a bit of, uh, yeah, but once you have the, the, the confidence there of like, I can handle this, I got this, even though it's gonna be difficult, um, I started a, a new new class. I, I, I'm teaching a new uh, language now. And so it's it's new challenges and everything. But I'd say I, I got this. I know this. This is uh, this is what I can do. It's not beyond what I can do. It's exactly in that spot. It's just uncomfortable, but I need to get used to it. And and that's the 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 wiring part. And the more you do it, the, you keep doing it. You realize, yes, it can be done and you can even step further instead of uh, stopping or blocking yourself, I think, in many ways. Yeah, an interesting, simple first step for people to realize how much we rely on our old pathways is to put your toothbrush in a new place. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Kind of challenge yourself of like reorienting with, with things. 
Yeah, and and that that's somebody I I'm kind of um, often for me it's difficult to accept change, but it's because of that because you feel I cannot handle it or change things, and and then it it is possible once you you realize you can, and that's uh, and so you mentioned I think one of your posts is about positive thinking as well, and I think that that kind of at least outlook positive outlook is is hugely important for us. Uh, it's called the science of positivity. Stop negative thought patterns by changing your brain chemistry. And it really goes into, though, the idea of why people are negative. And part of it, as you say, is that negativity is natural, but also negativity is rewarded. So even when the person says, I can't do that, other people do it for them would be one simple example. And when you keep telling yourself, I'm no good, or I can't do this, that's exactly the reality you will find, because uh, uh, you are kind of giving this impression to others as well as to self, so to yourself, so it won't work out. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And also, when you take that first step to do something new, you're not good at it when you take the first step. So it's, um, that's why I always try to explain about neural pathways big neural pathways. Oh, and since you teach languages. So the way a person learned their native language, nobody was born with it. So everyone learned from this laborious repetition, but we were not aware of it. And also we had neuro more neuroplasticity when we were young. So once you are in your middle years, if you try to learn a new language, it takes laborious repetition. And it's the same way with rewiring your emotions. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that is important of like, of, of again, uh, being aware of, uh, of, uh, of those changes of um, um, trying, we're trying to learn sign language currently during COVID. And, uh, and it's like, at this point, like, I, I know various languages, but it's something completely different. And I feel like now I'm using my hands to communicate, which I find fascinating, but it's also so challenging because I'm used to uh, just using my mouth for communication. So that's kind of also a shift that is, I think more people need to challenge themselves with, with things they haven't tried yet and find out how much they, they like it. And so uh, one, uh, one question, it's a big question though, um, um, but I'd like to kind of wrap up with this question, is the idea of evolution. So there are people, who do not embrace it. There are people who do not subscribe to it and so on. Um, I have some thoughts why that might be, but what, what do you think? What would you say to people who say, no, nah, that's just a theory. It doesn't really exist. It's not proven. What would you say to um, a person who says that? Everybody has a belief system. Um, and I have to accept uh, and then uh, certain belief systems give you a sense of solidarity. I look for the overlap between my belief system and others. And frankly, I have to tell you that more Christians love my work than here in Northern California, everybody's Buddhist. And they want to think that the default state is happiness. I know that I, I know people might tell me that's not the real Buddhism. I know, but that's the California Buddhism that <laughs> um, that the default state is that happiness should just come to us. Whereas what I'm saying in evolution is that happiness is a reward for survival behavior. So they reject my work as much as the extreme anti-evolution people. But um, but the anti-evolution, I've had a tiny, very little of that. I, I get very little of that. I get more resistance from the higher spirituality people who want to think that the goal of life is higher spirituality. And therefore, if I'm saying that they think what I'm saying is that survival makes you happy and they think that's wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you should think that way. I'm saying you do think that way and you can't manage it until you see it. 
Yeah, so I think my personal view is that a lot of people are scared of that thought. Like even when Charles Darwin started with it, what do you mean we're not special? And that takes away that status, that serotonin that we would get. It's like we are different from everyone else. We are created in the image of God. And then suddenly you realize that we come from monkeys. So um, I think that's like hard to accept. And then Freud came up with a second revolution of like, yeah, you have all these dark instincts and so on and, uh, and sexual drives and aggressive drives. So that also took us away from this like quasi angelic uh, view that we had of ourselves. Do you think that might be also a factor there? Well, but what modern academia has tried to do is to make monkeys be angels. Okay. And then we are now below monkeys because monkeys are good and loving and cooperative and we are evil. So that's like another cult. So that's what I meant about, like, I just say, well, everybody I meet already has a belief system. And but so thank you for we We have tremendous overlap in our belief system, which is yes, amazing. Yes. And it was actually years ago, I, I, I stumbled upon, I think, one of your articles and that's again years ago. And uh, I was impressed. So when when I saw your name, it's like I remember this uh, Inner Mammal Institute and went back and I was following you actually years ago on, on Twitter. So I was that's why very, very thrilled to to talk to you. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for, for taking my sometimes challenging questions as well and uh, for just being so wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work you're doing. And your book is Status Games, Why We Play and How to Stop. It's your latest book, one of many, and they're all interesting. They're all fascinating. I can tell already. Thank you so much. Great thank to meet you, so you and keep in touch. Take care.